Hello, this is episode 252. In this episode, we'll be talking about a question that I receive a lot and I see get discussed in online forums as well. Now, the question is along these lines. It'll be a combination or one of these things. If you're doing your long-term home, your forever home, and you have uh, no idea if or when you'll sell your home, how much should you take the resale value into account when you're making your decisions? Should you include specific things in your design to improve the home's resale ability or its resale value? Should you listen to your architect, your designer or your builder and the suggestions that they're making about what actually adds value for resale if it's something that you don't think you'll want or need? And can you do a home that's just for you and not put your resale value at risk? So I'm going to share my thoughts on this, plus I'm going to give you some tips and some action steps that you can take to clarify this for yourself. Now, remember, if you want to grab a full free downloadable PDF transcript of this episode with links to the other resources that I discussed, then you can access that by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 252. That's the numbers 252. Now, let's dive in. I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and I recognise the continuing connection to lands, waters, skies and communities. I pay my respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders both past and present. If we haven't met before, I'm Amelia Lee. Based in northern New South Wales, Australia, I'm a wife, mum and architect and I've worked in the architectural industry for over 27 years now. Having worked on over 250 projects, mainly residential family homes, as well as significantly renovating three homes of my own with my hubby, whilst our three kids were babies, toddlers and even older, I have a personal and professional understanding of the joy, challenges, stresses and excitement of making your family home a reality. In mid-2014, I started Undercover Architect and it's an online business to help and teach homeowners like you how to get it right when designing, building and renovating your family home. Undercover Architect is all about giving you access to the industry knowledge and insights you need to avoid the mistakes and dramas that can cost you thousands, tens of thousands and even hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's about levelling the playing field so that the world of renovating and building doesn't seem so mysterious and you can be the active driver in your project, navigating it with know-how and confidence. Undercover Architect helps and teaches homeowners through this podcast, the website and our online courses and programs, including my flagship program, Home Method. I truly believe that when you know the questions to ask, the steps to take and the best way to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in, you can enjoy the process of building and renovating, as well as the home that you move into at the end of this ambitious journey. Consider Undercover Architect your secret ally, whoever you're working with and whatever your location, your budget or your dreams. Grab access to my free online workshop, Your Project Plan, and learn super helpful information to save time, money and stress in your reno or new build. You can find it at undercoverarchitect.com forward slash project plan. That's P-R-O-J-E-C-T-P-L-A-N. Now, let's get on to the episode. I want to start by sharing a story that really highlighted for me just how uh, interesting it is how we think about our homes and the idea of resale and then being a financial asset versus being the place that we live, make memories and uh, that 
provides shelter and security to us. Now, a little while ago, my youngest daughter, she's in grade six at school and she was learning about Maslow's hierarchy of needs as part of the overall theme for the term that it was in. Now, if you're not familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I'll pop a link in the resources for you. But basically, in 1943, a psychologist named Abraham Maslow published a paper called A Theory of Human Motivation. And he proposed that humans have five sets of needs that ascend from, if you picture a triangle with the fattest part at the bottom, you, they ascend from that base of the triangle through five levels to the point end at the top. Now, one, uh, you know, once each of the level of needs is satisfied or part of the level is satisfied, then the human's desire will happen to start fulfilling the next level. And the triangle from the bottom or lower order uh, needs to the top, this, this is the order that it goes in. So at the base, at the fattest part of the triangle is the physiological needs. They include air, water, shelter, food, sleep, reproduction. The next level up is uh, safety needs and that includes personal security, employment, resources, health and property. Okay, so we've got shelter in our physiological needs, we've got property in our safety needs. As we ascend, we head to love and belonging. That includes friendship, intimacy, family and a sense of connection. And above that then is esteem and that includes respect, self-esteem, status, recognition, strength and freedom. And at the top, at the pointy end, at the pinnacle of the triangle and the highest order need in Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs is self-actualization. And so this is the desire to become the most that one can be. Now, I find this hierarchy of needs really fascinating when it comes to our homes because whilst humans build shelter, or built shelter initially to satisfy the lowest level order of physiological needs. I think our homes now ascend all the way through that hierarchy of needs. And for many, they actually achieve many of the the parts of those orders that I mentioned that I've outlined. Now, I know that's not the case for everyone, but in terms of the audience, I think is here listening to the podcast, home has moved beyond simply being about physiological safety needs, and it offers the opportunity to satisfy higher orders of higher order needs as well. Interestingly, I also read an article that proposed that one of the reasons that we're building larger, more luxurious homes is because in developed countries, we're doing a better job of satisfying those lower order needs at the base of Maslow's triangle. An article that was published in Fast Company in early 2020, so actually it was just prior to COVID, it said this, it said, put simply, as countries develop and individual incomes rise, people's, uh, people prioritise higher order needs such as privacy, autonomy and the fulfilment of personal ambitions. Anyway, and I'll pop a link to that article if you want to read more about it in the resources. Now, back to my daughter. So at the beginning of their term, they were all given an egg. Okay, so they're an amazing teacher. We really have hit the jackpot with my youngest teacher, my youngest teacher this year. I mean, all the teachers are incredible. Um, she'd actually spent her holidays hand blowing eggs for the whole class. <laughs> and she had even done a vegan option for one of the students uh, of a balloon with rice. I think they had a slightly unfair advantage compared to the kids with the empty eggs. But, you know, what an incredible teacher. So the kids were given an egg each. And the goal was that by the end of the term, they had to help that egg move through the levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And so that meant not breaking it. It meant building its shelter. It meant feeding it. So, yep, this egg sat at our dining table each night and also ensuring that they were caring for it 24-7. 
Now, the teacher had given parents an out to take a break if we found it all too much at home, which I know we did a couple of times. But for the whole term, my youngest, she carted this egg to and from school each day on a 40 plus minute bus trip. Uh, you know, in its custom made home, she kept it safe and unbroken. She rented herself out as a babysitter to other people's eggs. Uh, they had egg get togethers and they had a range of activities to help the egg achieve the higher order needs. Now, how would they know that the egg had reached self-actualization? Well, my youngest said that when the egg had a big smile on its face, which she knew she'd be drawing on after a period of keeping it alive, in inverted commas, that then it would have reached self-actualization. Now, needless to say, not all eggs reached self-actualization. To be frank, not all eggs made it safely out of the classroom on day one. Now, why am I mentioning all of this to you apart from the giggles about, about this assignment? Well, the whole exercise really prompted some fascinating questions and conversations about the whole idea of home and shelter and security and how property factors into our lives as humans. And it had me thinking a lot about the kinds of conversations that I have with homeowners, you know, and how that then sits alongside the fact that our homes, you know, they're generally our most significant financial asset. They can be leveraged to grow personal wealth, as well as be something that we can also carry a lot of long-term debt for. Now, Despite our homes being buildings that satisfy really basic human needs, this is also coupled with, you know, a bunch of metrics about our personal finances as well. In fact, of the 10.3 million homes in Australia, around 6 million of them have mortgages on them. And as at January, as at January, sorry, January 2022, get it out, Amelia, the average Aussie mortgage is just shy of $600,000 and it varies from state to state. I think New South Wales's average mortgage was something like $792,000. So now the total mortgage debt in Australia across owner-occupier properties, it sits at $1.3 trillion. That's just owner-occupier. Investor properties is um, sits at about half of that again in terms of debt. So, and you know, this will be the similar globally. I know we have lots of other other listeners from other locations uh, listening to the Undercover Architect podcast, um, you know, it'd be really interesting, obviously, to check out your own uh, stats around mortgage debt and how your mortgage might compare to the average mortgage. I think it's just a really interesting uh, investigation to make. Now, needless to say, many have a lot at stake in the value of their home and how it might grow or improve over time as well. Now, this can make our homes and renovating and building them super tricky. And there can be emotional and psychological drivers for why you want things to be a certain way. And then that gets overlaid with financial metrics and this whole idea about being logical and sensible about your choices and where you're going to spend your money, especially if you feel that these things are going to be too personal or too directional for others' tastes and preferences. You know, can we actually unlink the role that our homes play as a place of security and shelter in fulfilling these lower orders in Maslow's hierarchy of needs with the higher order ones that we have of status and self-esteem and how our homes might help us deliver on those? You know, does security as a low order need also mean financial security so that we can fund the shelter that we have? There's some really interesting things to weigh up when it actually comes to our homes and unpacking all of that. And so there can be a balance of seeing a home as a real estate checklist that markets well and looks great as an asset and an offering for future potential buyers 
versus what your family needs and what it can afford to create and what's in true alignment with how you want to live and your view on the world and your values as an individual and a family. So this question of how much do I need to worry about resale when I'm renovating or building my family home, that's completely understandable. And when designers and architects and builders make suggestions about rooms and spaces and inclusions that you should consider for their resale value, well, it's understandable if you're worried and wondering if you should actually listen to them, even if these things aren't necessarily what you had planned for your future home. I've had many homeowners get in touch with me because they're getting well-meaning suggestions to include a butler's pantry or a fourth or a fifth bedroom or to not do a carport but instead do a double car garage or to ensure that they ensuite their main bedroom or that they include dedicated guest accommodation. You know, and they're torn because they can rationally understand the suggestions but they don't feel right when they're viewed in alignment with their own needs and wishes or they feel that those things are going to steal budget you know, for things that they, they may not use from the things that they will use on a regular basis. So what is best for you to do, of course, is going to vary based on your personal financial situation, where your project is located and the length of time that you plan to live in your home. However, I want to take you through some specific considerations if this is something that you're grappling with in your project. Now, one of the steps that I do teach very early in home method is to do some investigations to assess the real estate value of your home, both as it is currently uh, and, you know, what with, with your future plans actually taken into account and how that might impact the real estate value. This, this is a recommendation that I make because so many fear the idea of overcapitalizing their home when they're renovating and building. And so understanding those current values and assessing that against what you've paid for the property as well you know, that helps you make much more objective decisions about your budget and about your project. The other reason that I include it as an early check and an early step is because if your property is mortgaged currently or you need to borrow money to do your renovation or your new build project, then whoever you're seeking finance from, they're going to want to determine the value of your project before they finance it. So by doing that investigation yourself first, it naturally puts you in a much better and a more informed position before you even get to those kinds of discussions. I'm also a really big believer that the money that you're spending on your project, regardless of whether it's through obtained savings, whether it's through investments or financing or inheritance or some other means, I believe that that's money that you could be spending on anything. And so understanding real estate values and understanding the financial metrics of your current property and your potential project that actually helps you make spending decisions that are much more informed. Now, don't get me wrong, you don't always have to be assessing your return on investment on a family home renovation or a new build project like you're running a feasibility of a property development project and you're targeting a specific yield. You know, your return on investment when it comes to renovating or building your family home, it can be delivered in so many non-financial ways. But I do find that homeowners who don't understand the financial metrics of the process, who haven't done some homework first about all of this, they can be naive, they can be too ambitious um, and they can create headaches for themselves in their personal situation. I also know that you never know what's around the corner and if you have to sell your home a lot sooner than anticipated or you want to leverage it for other investments, you're going to have a lot more flexibility if you've taken the financial metrics into account as part of your overall research and process. Life is full of surprises and whilst we can't plan for everything, we can definitely put ourselves in a better position to handle the unexpected. So how do you navigate this for yourself? Well, let's look at some specific tips and I've got five for you. 
Firstly, I suggest that you speak to some local real estate agents about your existing home or your land and then the plans that you have for it. It can be really worthwhile to have conversations with agents that regularly sell property in your area and by doing this, you can discuss what demands value in your area, what types of people are looking for property and the kinds of things that they seek in the homes that are in your suburb and your surrounding area. Now, you may find that there are things that you hadn't considered that you'd actually really love to include. You may also discover that there are deal breakers that help you make a decision one way or the other about something that you were undecided about. And you'll also be able to get an understanding of sale prices and what the existing and the potential value of your home may be. And this can be super handy, as I said, if you didn't purchase it recently, it might have moved in value since you bought it. And it'll give you a bit of an understanding about where it sits in the marketplace. And if you're borrowing money for your project, of course, as I said before, your financier is going to have to organise a valuation of your property to determine whether or not they can lend you money. And so having conversations with agents to help you anticipate what those values might be, as, as you know, valuers will compare your property to recent sales of similar properties in your area and surrounding areas as well. Now, remember, Though, okay, you don't have to take the real estate agent's advice as gospel. The, you know, through these conversations, you might actually discover that your own wishes and wants for your home may result in it being different to other homes in the area. And that may just mean that you have to factor in a different sales process or a different potential sales price for your home if and when you decide to sell it. I know that when we did our renovations on our own projects, you know, our homes, they were always a little out of the ordinary for the suburb. We included things that we knew would be super functional for the long-term lifestyle in the home or things that celebrated the quirkiness of the home that were things that we'd really fallen in love with when we'd purchased the home originally. And we bought homes that were a little quirkier than others too because we just liked the difference of them. So we worked with agents who then actually shaped their marketing approach on that basis and they targeted potential buyers on that basis as well. Now, the next tip that I've got is... Uh, really wanting you to speak openly and frankly to your team about your project with clarity about what you're seeking to achieve and your overall goals for your project and your future lifestyle and your home. Now, if you're worried about your design or build team offering helpful suggestions that might send you off track or have you designing a home that's all about resale and not really about your needs and wishes, then your briefing of that design and build team, how you actually tell them what you want, that's going to become really important. And if you're wanting to do something that's a little out of the ordinary or feels less conventional than what you see in your area, perhaps it's smaller or it's, you know, slightly different arrangement, then it's worth not only having a great brief, but also finding a like-minded designer and builder as well. When you actually work with a team that shares similar values to you and they understand your project goals and vision and what you're seeking to achieve in your future home, then they're they're far more likely to keep you on track and keep you accountable to those wishes than to try and veer you elsewhere. I know that when I worked with clients, I was often reminding them of the things that they'd actually told me that they wanted to achieve in their project at the outset so that we could stay true to those wishes. And if those wishes actually change along the journey, then that's done intentionally rather than it simply being a consequence of haphazard decisions that are made along the way. If you're needing help with how to create a brief for your designer or your architect, then make sure you check out episode 196, where I take you through some specific things to consider. You can grab that at undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 196. And inside Home Method, I've got my template brief builder, which actually streamlines the process of creating your brief. It gives you a place to put all of that important information. 
um, asks you a series of questions to answer so you can really craft this incredible communication document. I've had loads of feedback from members and professionals alike about how much they love that brief builder and the difference that it makes at the start of a project to really get everyone aligned with your goals and what you're seeking to achieve in your future home and also what it does to actually extract that information from you in a really concrete way. Now, what if the suggestions that your designer or builder is making actually seem like a good and a reasonable idea, but they're not something that you'd initially considered? Or what if there's something you definitely don't want for yourself, but you can see their point about the difference that it might make for your resale value? Look, this is where you go back to those conversations that you had with agents so that you can understand the true impact and the reality of the designer's or the builder's recommendations. You know, omitting those items or spaces, it may not be as dire as the designer or the builder is making it out to be. Including them but varying them to suit you more specifically, that may also be a great opportunity to improve your project. You won't actually know until you test the reality of those suggestions, whether they really will improve or be necessary in the resale value of your home and then how they're going to fit into your budget and your future lifestyle plans for your home overall. Now, let's chat about my next tip. So thirdly, if you're financing your project, speak to your mortgage broker about your borrowing capacity. Many make the mistake of waiting too long to speak to a mortgage broker or their bank manager about their borrowing capacity and they rely on online calculators or assumptions that they have. Now, the lending landscape can change. Banks and other financial institutions can change their policies about the types of projects they'll finance and what they won't. And they can also change their product offerings as well. So the sooner you understand what's involved in financing your project, the steps that you're going to have to go through to get approved and access that money, and then what the financier is going to need to know and to review, the better position that you'll be in. Part of actually having your lending approved is, as I've been saying, it's going to involve getting a valuation of your home. And depending on the structure of your lending and your finance, they may also need to value the the future value of your project once construction's finished. So those earlier conversations and research that you've done with local agents that I told you you should do, they're going to help you be far more prepared for this as well. I've seen homeowners be really surprised that a valuation was lower than they'd anticipated when valuations have changed over time as well because, of course, we're planning projects over a long duration or that the risk profile of their property has changed and that impacts the finance that they can access. You know, sometimes this can mean having to find extra cash to fund the project or changing the project to suit a lower budget. Sometimes for some people, it's actually meant that they've needed to add a space that's deemed to create more value in the property. You know, it's incredibly frustrating to hear lenders say you need to have four bedrooms in this area and the homeowners being forced to make a decision to spend money and include that fourth bedroom in their design plan so that they can access the additional funding that it affords them due to the increased value in the property. You know, this is where I think the system is really broken and it's infuriating and it's ripe for disruption, especially I think as sustainability metrics and other factors come into the risk profiles of properties and their values. In fact, there are actually a few banks now that are offering specific loans for sustainable projects that have lower interest rates. And I think these kinds of things are only going to increase over time. I've got a few podcast episodes that I'll point you to that are interviews with mortgage brokers. They're really useful listening for you to understand more about all of this, what banks need to know, the overall process and how to go about getting yourself sorted and prepared. So make sure you check the resources for this episode where all the links are and you can find those, uh, all of that stuff at undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 252, which is the number of this episode 252. 
Now, my fourth tip is to determine your project goals, your own values and intentions for your future home. And then once you have, keep revisiting them throughout your project journey. Look, the, and I'm going to do this inverted commas, you know, you must renovate and build in a certain way to improve the financial of your home and your own personal wealth. That's a really loud message that's fed to us on a regular basis. And it's difficult to ignore as you make your future family home a reality. But no one enjoys life in a home that doesn't feel like theirs. And when you live out of alignment with your own values and what you feel is important and special to you and your family, it does feel unsettled and it feels very unhomely. Some of the best work that you can do before you start planning your project, before you choose a team, before you decide on a budget, before you get into any of the nuts and bolts of renovating or building your future home, is to get clear on your own project goals and your own values and your intentions for your future home. And look, this is probably, you know, it should probably be my first tip in the five tips that I'm sharing with you. However, I don't think many actually initially see the role that that a tip like this plays in creating clarity for your project and simplifying decisions generally, including whether you do something for resale or for you. Time and time again, however, especially as I take Home Method members through this in the early stages of our lessons in there, I really see how it pays dividends through their whole project journey. It impacts who they choose for their team. It helps them decide their budget and then where their budget is best spent and how it is distributed. It guides them through decisions that may at first seem confusing, but when tested against goals and intentions and values, they become really clear. And it ultimately helps them really know themselves and what their family really needs and wants. Remember the pinnacle of Maslow's hierarchy of needs was self-actualization, where you actually become the best version of yourself. That's the top in terms of the highest order need. Well, it's hard to achieve that when you don't really know who you are right now and then can shape some ideas and vision about who you want to become. And for many, where they live and how they live can feature heavily into that future vision of that best version of themselves. So spend some time thinking about this and how it sits with your project plans. I find that most quickly see that their home is actually not about a real estate checklist of rooms, but instead it's a container for experiences, an opportunity to streamline their lives and to make everyday life more comfortable and convenient and a place where they can make memories and feel a certain way both on their own as individuals and together as a family. When you see your home that way, it actually builds a lot of pathways to your potential outcome in your future home. And you can view your budget investment as more than simply a transactional way of improving your personal wealth. You can start to fold in various considerations about resale value, about lifestyle benefits and the embodiment of your own values and goals. Now, I've got one more tip and this is it. I want you to remember that you need only one person to buy your home when the time comes. I think we get led to believe that the only way to sell a property for a great price is to get a massive bunch of people all competing against each other in a frenzy to pay top dollar for your property and get you the best price possible. However, there are so, so, so many times that this doesn't happen and so many times that that doesn't work out for you either. I remember a property investor actually telling me that they hated auctions because all it did was determine the least amount of money somebody was willing to pay for your property. It took me a while to think on that because, you know, from the outside, auctions look like they're all about driving the price up. But if you really think about it, that person's right. If you think about what people actually do at an auction. I'm going to tell you something really frankly right now about our third renovation. 
it was a big project. We were really ambitious about the sales results that we wanted for it. And we knew that this project wasn't for everyone. For starters, it was an art deco stucco Queenslander in an area where traditional weatherboard Queenslanders and Hamptons inspired home renovations. They were the preferred aesthetic. And our home wasn't that. It was it was this, we loved it, Art Deco, Stucco, Queenslander. Now, we got a valuation for it so the agents actually had something to work with and also so we could manage our expectations because, you know, when you've got agents competing for your listing, they are throwing around stupid prices that they think that they can get you and we also wanted to know, you know, for anybody that was needing to finance the project, what, you know, that, that the sales price wasn't going to fall over at the valuation point. So we had that, we paid for that valuation so that we had an educated position about what we th- what the property could be valued at. Now, we ended up working with an agent, a local agent that we'd bought and sold with for our previous two homes. She proposed an auction campaign with a view to take offers prior and the hope to sell it before we got to auction. And the plan was to not go to auction. You know, the market was was good. Uh, we'd each of our homes that we'd that we'd sold and you know and we'd renovated and sold before they'd generally either sold the first one sold on the first day it was on the market the other one sold within the first week you know but they were at much lower price points than this house was so you know we weren't sure now we had so many people (laughs) walk through that home so many rumors in the area about what we apparently wanted for it price wise as well it was ridiculous it really was you know things that we heard from other parents at the school it was just insane and we ended up with several really interested parties but they all had ceilings on their purchase prices that weren't near enough to what we wanted and what we had seen that the property had been valued for Unfortunately, we ended up actually going to auction and it was held in a CBD building where they ran, you know, a bunch of auctions all on the same day and you go into that kind of auditorium space. And I remember before, you know, the whole thing started, we were sitting in this building's lobby. I was there with my husband before the auction started and we were there with our agent and she was saying to us, look, you know, the four parties are here. They're really keen, but I don't think they're going to get to where you want to in that price. Um, So if they don't, if it doesn't get high enough, we will pass it in and then we'll plan phase two of the campaign. We'll pass it in at a vendor's bid that's higher and and we'll, and we'll then plan phase two. Now, <laughs> you can probably imagine, you're probably sitting there screaming at me going, Amelia, why on earth did you agree to that? Hubby and I, we just finished three and a half years of renovating this home. Uh, we had three kids under the age of five at this point. Um, I was co-owner of an architectural practice. If I'd had more sleep <laughs> in my life at this point, Maybe I've had had the fortitude to say, hang on, we're not going to auction then because once we pass it in, it's going to be branded with that price and anything that, you know, trying to get it up from there is going to be super hard and and told, you know, this agent that we were going to pull it from the auction register straight away. Um, But I didn't, you know, I didn't have my wits about me, stupidly. I didn't want to rock the boat. Hubby and I actually both, he was just as tired, if not more tired than I was. We both spoke later about our uh, individual discomfort in that moment, um, but we felt we both had felt that we were on a train that we actually couldn't get off at that point. And so the auction happened and all the buyers, uh, those four parties, they all bid and they all hit their ceiling and it got passed in at a vendor's bid, you know, that was higher as the agent had predicted as it all been set out. And we were so deflated and we were frustrated. You know, as I said, our previous properties had sold incredibly quickly in very similar market conditions. This was definitely different territory for us and not what we'd expected at all. 
We still had some short time in our contract with that agent and she tried to get those buyers up in price, but she couldn't. And she really tried to get us to accept the lower price, which we wouldn't. And so once we could, we finished things up with her and then we spent a month taking stock and speaking to other agents and figuring out what we were going to do next. And we then went back on the market with a different agent. And this agent marketed the property with a completely different strategy. He also felt that the buyer would come from out of area, uh, looking for something different to what was normally in demand in the area. And he was right. He found a buyer who was out of area They hadn't been at the auction. They saw the value in the property that others didn't. And they ended up buying the property significantly over that passed in value. It was actually about 20% more. So the home secured the top price in the suburb that year. The reason I tell you this story is because you only need one buyer to be interested in your property and to see value in it for you to be able to sell it and sell it for the amount of money that you want for it. You know, we all know those properties that surprise us, that get more than what anyone expected or the uh, the anomalies in the suburb. And it's up to you what kind of risk you want to take based on your own personal financial position. I am not suggesting, big disclaimer here, I'm not suggesting that you go out and be crazy about this. This is really up to you to assess what what is right for you and what is going to suit your personal position in terms of your finances and your long-term view for your home and how you want to how you want to live in it how you want to spend money on it and what it needs to do for you so I'm going to take you through those five tips just to recap okay the first one is speak to some local real estate agents about your existing home or land and your plans for it so you can understand the values and understand what works in your area Speak, uh, the tip number two is to speak openly and frankly to your team about your project with clarity about what you're seeking to achieve and your overall goals. So you can bring everybody in together on the same page. Number three is if you're financing your project, then speak to your mortgage broker sooner rather than later about your borrowing capacity so that you understand the steps that are involved in getting finance. Number four is determine your project goals and your own values and intentions for your future home and then keep revisiting them throughout your project journey so you can use them to guide your decisions and keep you on track. And then number five, remember you only need one person to buy your home when the time comes. I do hope that that was helpful for you and that you can use those thoughts and those questions and those strategies as some guidance when you're weighing up whether you should do something for resale or whether you should do it for you. And I'm actually really interested as the future rolls out for us to see if the metrics and the lens through which we actually value property these days, whether that changes over the coming years and the decades as we need to achieve greater sustainability in our homes to meet carbon targets and to impact climate change. You might actually find the value proposition that local agents are telling you now that you need to adhere to that that actually changes in the future. And perhaps compact homes that use less energy, that are more climate resilient, that require less to maintain and they're more thermally comfortable, that those ones actually grow in value faster than the big energy sucking and poor performing homes out there. You know what though? Most of the time, I actually don't think that you have to choose between designing for resale and designing for you. Having worked with homeowners for as long as I have, I generally don't think you have to choose. You know, financing conversations notwithstanding, if a bank's telling you that you have to have a four-bedroom house in order to borrow the money that you need to, you know, those kinds of things aside, I think that you can create a home that uniquely suits you and your family and is also attractive for future buyers as well. I don't think you necessarily have to choose or have to compromise the you-ness of your home. 
I've got conversations with Jessica Belloff uh, in season 11 of the podcast. She wrote a book called Individual and that may be a really, that podcast um, interviews across two parts, that may be a really helpful resource for you if you're struggling with how to create a home that authentically reflects you whilst balancing that with designing for resale or potential future owners. So I'll pop those episodes, uh, those links to those episodes in the resources as well. The main thing underpinning all of this, the main thing that I really want to encourage you to remember from this episode is to get informed, okay, to have conversations, to get educated. Don't operate in a vacuum based on a bunch of assumptions about what apparently will improve resale for your property. Learn more about what actually drives value in your area and then get to know what you really want to achieve and what's in alignment with what you want to do so that you can balance your decision making with those things in mind. Now, remember, you can grab a full and a free PDF downloadable transcript of this episode with all of the links to the resources that I've mentioned by heading to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 252. That's the numbers 252. And if you'd like to be more informed as you research, design, build and renovate your future home, then continue diving into all of the other resources that are available on Undercover Architects platforms. And I'd also suggest checking out Home Method, my flagship program, by heading to www.homemethod.com.au. As always, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye.